Alan Kring Productions, in association with the Emergent Light Studio, presents the Illinois State Collegiate Compendium, Academic Lectures in Business and Economics. This is Business Finance, FIL 240 for Spring Semester 2023. Today, risk and return, and uh, I'll clean up the bonds section, chapter seven, before we move on to uh, greener pastures. <coughs> I'm trying to think what else I need to say. The uh, answers for the midterm will be up. You did actually a surprisingly good job on it, which means I'll have to make the final a lot harder. Then, but other than that, welcome back to class and we'll go through, uh, like I said, today is a start of risk and return, but there are some topics in bonds, more of the mathy type of stuff that I wanted to hold off until after the midterm. And so I'll do that for a little bit before we go on to chapter eight. Now, as far as what's going on, as usual, we are going to look at the markets and see whether it's a sad day or a uh, good day. Well, quit it. Stop it. Okay. Here we go. Well, isn't that an interesting thing? Okay. Uh, bear day or bull day? Bull. Bull. And it's an unusual bull day because the Dow is up strong, stronger than the S&P 500, which is up stronger than the NASDAQ. The NASDAQ's been having a hard time staying in positive territory today. So whatever news is driving the bulls, it is driving the bulls uh, to buy the very large stocks, the heavy companies, the high cap, the large cap companies, and sort of ignore the small cap companies for the time being. And uh, as far as the worries about what's going to happen as far as a banking crisis goes, that was, uh, that was a lot of that was sensationalism. The uh, OMG, we had a bank fail. Well, yes, it did fail, and it failed rather uh, uh, nicely. But is the idea that there was going to be a contagion effect, uh, that was not on the table from the very beginning. That it's just a bank, a relatively large bank, biting the dust. Now, I do want to mention, and I can't, I mean, I can't remember whether I said anything before the break about this, but there is a phenomenon called the contagion effect, where one bank failing or a couple of banks failing can actually have this ripple effect, not just across other banks in the region, but across the country and even across nations. An example of that was. I'm trying to remember, I think it was in the 1990s, there was an Asian crisis that started with a couple of banks in Thailand, and by the time it was over, it was rattling banks from Hong Kong to South Korea. Uh, it was quite a thing, and Japan, that was quite a thing. And then there have been others where there has been a contagion effect, where one bank failing causes a, a shockwave across a bunch of banks. And oh, the finger pointing is going on right now, well, what was the cause of this? And uh, I mean, the Fed is looking all over for a scapegoat other than itself. It's been pushing interest rates higher and higher. And of course, that is to fight the inflation. But the effect on banks, it's, that causes a great deal of stress on banks. They can't make loans because interest rates are so high. They find themselves with a book of existing uh, bonds that is actually dry going down in price because interest rates in the economy are going up. So the balance sheets of these banks is under stress. And of course, the Fed isn't going to blame itself for this. It's going to look around for everyone and issue indictments against uh, bank officials to cover its own uh, tracks. That's the way it is. That's, that's how things work. Now, notice, here's an interesting thing. And this is getting into the world where it's not conspiracy theory. Crude oil prices have really dropped a lot, and yet gas prices have not. 
there is clearly a consolidation going on. The, the large oil companies are protecting their profit margins. They're not going to bring down their gas prices until they absolutely have to. And that's just so that they are expanding their profits. Last year, during the spike in uh, oil prices and gas prices going up to over $5 a gallon, their profits, the profits of the largest oil companies were just insane. They were the largest in history adjusted for inflation. And they're not about to give up those massive profit margins just because some silly thing like oil is going down in price. How long is it going to take? Well, uh, your guess is as good as mine at this point because there's plenty of oil out there. As you can see, the price of oil is low uh, compared. It's a half of what it was a year or so ago. So there you go. That's a little bit of so much for the idea of perfectly efficient markets and all that. Gold and silver are doing nothing at all. They're just looking stupid. I'm going to bring up something to you now, just a, a new little thing. This, see that EURUSD? That's called a currency pair. That is the exchange rate of the euro for dollars. And what that is telling you right now is that one euro costs $1.07 about. Now, that is uh, the euro uh, when the, that number goes up. That means that the euro is strengthening against the dollar. It is appreciating. When that number goes down, the euro is depreciating against, it is sliding against the dollar. Think about it this way. If I can buy one euro, uh, if I can buy one euro for a dollar four, okay. But if it gets to a dollar seven, that means the euro has gotten more muscular against the dollar. It possibly could go up as it could go up farther than further than where it is right now. The driving factors, one of the driving factors is the interest rate differentials of the countries. Remember, interest rates are the price of money. So as the euro goes up against the dollar, one of the driving forces of that is that Euro European uh, interest rates are projected to go up more than U.S. interest rates are. Why would that be? Because the Fed is suddenly, quietly backing off its contractionary money monetary policy. It now grasps that that was causing the banks so much stress that it's not going to push it as hard as it was before. So Euro is going to go up against the USD. That's a currency pair. Now there's also the GBP, Great Britain Pound. That's, I used, you'll hear me call it the pound sterling against US dollar. Notice that that one is going up too. In other words, right now, a one pound costs $1.22.71. Okay, now that's been going up because of the same, uh, for the same reason. A general sentiment that there is a stronger interest rate environment in Europe and in, in Great Britain right now than there is in the United States. How long will that last? We'll see, but it does matter to almost all of you because you're going to live in a very international world. And if you ever want to get into it, take my international finance course and you'll see just how vast that is and how much these exchange rates matter to that whole world that we're in now. A little warning here. You see this? USD JPY. Do you notice a little difference? You have the Euro slash USD, the uh, Great Britain Pound to slash USD, but this one is USD slash JPY. It's opposite. It, the quotations are the are backwards to the other ones. In this case, in the USJPY, that thing going down means the yen is appreciating. Don't ask me why Yahoo does this. It drives me crazy. You'll see me get myself tangled up with these direct and indirect quotes all the time in my international finance course. But it, it, it is, <clears throat> sure enough, if you turn this around, the yen has been appreciating against the dollar. So in other words, the dollar is slacking back down. It's weakening against major currencies around the world. And for the reason, as I said, 
the Fed is, they're still saying we're fighting inflation, but that's not really what they're doing now. They have really backed off in these unusual ways that they can manipulate the money supply. Anyway, London is cranking along. It's up a percent so far, and it's near its end of its day. Nikkei took a toilet break. It just really plunged over the day, one and a half percent down. So whatever's going on over there, it's hard to tell. But the world that you're going to be in is going to be an international world. So I'm going to bring up these currency pairs just to get you comfortable with knowing how to look at these and what this means to what we do in uh, global trade. And of course, always looking at our, um, our traditional stuff here. But anyway, a couple of last points. I'm going to do uh, another bond calculation, a couple more bond calculation problems, just so you have it in your notes. And um, what was I going to say? Yeah, and I'm going to cover a couple more subjects here. But I also, in uh, ReggieNet, I have some bond pricing problems, some practice problems. I'm not sure if I'm showing them. I'll have to check after class to see if I've got uh, the uh, show tab on for those. But you got a few more. I'll ask uh, a couple on the next quiz, and then after that, of course, on the final, you'll get a couple of bond questions as well. But just to refresh you after your long holiday, let's say BCJ 5.6%-2036. And of course, the actual, these are not, these are more like stock ticker symbols. Bond symbol ticker symbols are just ridiculously long things, so I dispense with that. Okay. If the yield is 5.45%, uh, what is the price And then taking it the other way, if the price is $972.40, what is the yield? The yield to maturity. I, I tend, when I say yield, I'm, I mean yield to maturity. Now there's another one called yield to call, where you replace the uh, date of maturity with the date that the, a call could be made on the dead instrument. Uh, <coughs> now doing this in the calculator, and I've found that most of you are more comfortable with using the calculator for these than Excel. But for the calculator, apps, finance, TVM solver. You start there. Now, N is the term. How many years are left? And this one is 2036. That would be 13 years. Now, again, you probably have already, because I said to write it, you probably have it in your notes, but make sure you have it in your notes. I percent, that is the yield. In this case, I know it. So I put it in there. It's the percent, 5.45% uh, four, is the yield. Five, whoops, try that again. 5.45. Now the present value, that's the price. We don't know that. That's what we're asking for is the price. Now the payment. The payment is the coupon 0 0.056 times, whoops, times, try that again, times 
The face value. The face value is always a thousand dollars. And that's the face value, one thousand. And then you go down, make sure that those are that P PMT down at the bottom is on end. And then you go back up to the price value, alpha solve. Now, this bond is selling at a premium to par. That's above $1,000. The reason is this. The coupon is more than the required rate the market wants. The required rate is that yield to maturity. So the coupon is paying more than the market wants. So you're going to have investors buy these because they, they've got candy in them. I'll let you get that down. Now, I'm going to take you through semi-annual, how bonds actually do work. Now, there's one exception, interestingly. If you buy a U.S. bond, its, it's payments are semi, it, the coupon payments will come semi-annually. The exception to that is in Euro credit markets. Those bonds actually do have annual, annual payments, but just in case you ever run into that in another course. Now, if it's semi-annual coupons, that means that the number of years to maturity must be multiplied by two because you'll get two payments every year. So in other words, 13 years, you'll get 30, 26 payments. So the N will be times. Now the I percent, it's going to be divided by two because the interest is calculated twice a year. Remember, compoundings follow the payment pattern. Two payments a year, twice the number of uh, twice the number of years, and half of the annual a the APR. Now, there's only one other thing you have to adjust: the payments have to be divided into two, because you'll get fifty-six dollars a year. You'll get. $28 every six months. Now, if you solve this, you do the alpha solve, you'll see that the change is not very significant. You do alpha solve, it was 1,013.72. Yeah, it goes to, to 1,013.84, a little bit more. It's not material. And as I told you, for an exam, I, I'll make it so that either annual or semi-annual, you'll get more full credit for it. There is one thing I'm going to bring up here in a few minutes that Matt, where this actually has an interesting impact. It has to do with what's called clean versus dirty price. But anyway, okay, that's enough of that. Now let's go back and we're going to do this again with finding the yield to maturity. First I'll do it annual, then I'll do it semi-annual. In this case, we still have the original, was that 13 years? Yeah, 13 years. Now this time we don't know the yield to maturity, so I just don't bother. Don't delete it, just leave it there. We'll go back and alpha solve the thing. Now in this case, we know the price. Negative, and don't forget to put a negative, 972.40 in the price value. 972.4. Oh. Now the payments are the coupon, 0 0.056 times 1,000. Everything else is the same. Future value is $1,000. But this time we're going to go up and we're going to do the alpha solve on the yield to maturity. Alpha solve. It's 5.91%. Put this in your notes. The price was at a discount to par. It was below $1,000. That means that the coupon is not enough for the investors. So they're selling off the bond. And sure enough, 
the investors are saying it should be paying 5.91% more than the coupon. So in other words, when the yield, when the uh, yield is above the coupon, the bond will sell at a discount to par. When the yield is above the coupon, the bond will sell at a discount to par. When the yield is above the coupon, the bond will sell at a discount to par. And that's the opposite of what happened in the first one, where we had the yield was below the coupon, so the bond sold at a premium to par, $1,013. Now let me take you back one more time and show you one more thing here. The um, semi-annual. What does that do to the yield? It won't do much like, I, like the last one. It's not going to be a significant change. But instead of 13 years, we'll have 13 times two payments. Now that yield's going to be a little interesting because the yield is going to be half of what it should be because it'll be the one for a six-month run. But anyway, leave the price alone. The payments, they're not $56 a year, they're 56 divided by two times twice a year. So it's $28 in PMT. Yeah? Oh, I'm looking for this one, the yield. I percent is always yield. So in the second one, so in the, I'm doing the second one, aren't I? Yeah. I'm looking for the yield. Okay, so now, when I go back up here and alpha solve, if you're using semi-annual coupons, for God's sake, don't write down this answer because this is a six-month yield to maturity because you gave it six-month data. So you have to just run over here, just say times two, and then drop down and it'll calculate it. Do you see how the yield is a little bit less, but it's not really material? It's not much at all. And like I said, I've got some practice problems for you to do. Just try them, get them, get it so that it's down to like just sort of a routine for you and you won't have a problem with this. I'm going to show you something here. When a bond, you get a quote on a bond or a price of a bond, you call your broker. What's the price of the bond? And he says, okay, it's 972. Forty. That's not exactly what you're gonna pay. Because there's gonna be an accrued interest. Someone is selling you this bond. Now there's a coupon that comes with this bond. It's, let's say it's paid every six months. He sells it here. Let's say that there's a coupon here of um, 20, $28. There's a coupon of $28 paid. Then six months later, there was another coupon. There's going to be another coupon of $28. Let's say you buy it here. Let's say 40 Eight days. No, no. Let me let me do that. Let's say a hundred and twenty days after the last coupon was paid. Now, when you buy that coupon here, you're not going to pay nine seventy two forty. You're going to pay 972 plus the accrued interest that the former owner who's selling it to you earned for 120 days on that coupon. So in other words, he or she got a $28 coupon. And then six months later, another $28 coupon will come. 
but he sells it after 120 days. So he, you have to pay him how much interest accrued over that time frame right there. Here's how you do it. It's not hard. Uh, I, I, the explanation is harder than the, than the math. You take $28 times 120 days out of 180. See, there's 180 days to the next payment. And that's how much interest accrued. If I do that, you're going to pay him the $972 plus the coupon for six months was $28 times 180, oh, 120, 120 days divided by 180 days. So that $18.67 will be added on to what you pay for the bond. So that will be plus, excuse me, 972.40. So you'll actually pay $991.07. All right, nine ninety one that right there, this is called the clean price. This is what you'll see quoted. This is what the broker will tell you when you ask him what's the price of this bond. This is what you will actually pay. We call it the dirty price. Kind of comes as a surprise to people when they buy bonds that they're they actually pay a little more than what they were expecting to pay, and they call the broker. What the hell is this? Is this your fee or something? He said, No, that's you. Uh, we quote the dirt, the clean price, but you have to pay the dirty price. In other words, the prorated coupon that the former owner had gathered before he sold the bond to you. And so, you know, that's just how it works. Yeah? Was it just supposed to be the nine nine one point zero six? What is the extra? Nine, oh, did I write that wrong? Uh, I'm just testing you. <laughs> See what happens when you try to talk and chew gum at the same time? Yeah, that, <clears throat> anyway, so that's the dirty price. And just be aware of that. If, you're, if you buy bonds, you'll probably be a little surprised. It, you know, if there are seasoned bonds that have been out there, you're, <coughs> you're buying from another investor who wants to sell it. But what's going to happen is that he had held the bond during the time when the next coupon was accumulating. You have to pay that uh, seller not just the price of the bond, but you also have to pay him for the coupon, uh, that he, the part of the coupon he has earned since the last coupon. And that's called the dirty price. And all you, it's really not that hard to calculate. All you do is just take the... Uh, coupon times the number of days since the last payment divided by 180. If it is semi-annual coupons, if it's annual coupons, it'd be divided by 360. Be, uh, be sure you know that. If the coupons are annual, it will be over 360 days. But if it's semi-annual, it's over 180 days. And yes, that's banker's days of, in a year. Mm. Enough of that. I don't think I'm going to do the reinvestment and stuff. I'm going to go on to the next topic here. Get out of this while I'm...
still making small mistakes instead of large mistakes. Where we go from here, the course takes a little bit of a turn. In term, we're getting down to what drives the financial world. The financial world really is driven by risk. Risk is everything to us. For a number of years, early in my teaching career, I taught economics. And the thing that kind of always amazed me was that the early economics courses never talked about risk in decision making. That was something that it kind of avoided. Now, it's not that way anymore. They bring up risk more now than they used to, but it's still not fully integrated. That's why finance, as a subdiscipline of economics, zeroes in and brings that into the picture, unlike the larger world of economics, because risk is actually the driving force of everything. <sighs> Try this. See if I can, I want to take this a couple of different ways. As I told you early in the course, one of the most basic definitions of risk is that risk is the possibility of different outcomes. And there are two factors in this. One, how many different outcomes. And two, how different they could be. Okay. You're falling asleep in class. I take whap on the side of, on the left side of your head. Chick cop. Okay? Now, there's no risk, it's gonna happen. Suppose that I instead do it on the right side of your head. Chick cop. Like that. Okay? You see that the number of outcomes has increased. So there's risk to you. I could get this way and then I'd be right brained, I'd get this way and I'd be left brained. <laughs> but they aren't that different. Okay, so there's not much risk involved. It's just, not, uh, it's just uh, immaterial. But how many can matter? Uh, but in this case, it doesn't. But if I flip a coin, you get $1,000 if it goes up heads. You lose $1,000 if it comes up tails. There's two outcomes, and they are very different outcomes. Okay. Another way, to, uh, but anyway, let's try this. You, sir, work at my donut shop. All you do is sell donuts. Ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching. Okay. And so I pay you $15, you $10 an hour, okay? $10 an hour, okay. And I say, you know what? I really need you in the back room. Now that's where we have this oil that is boiling hot. I mean, if this touches you, you get this giant scar on your, eh, you know, and then there's the stuff that you breathe and that oil gets into your lungs and, you know, you can't, you have emphysema by the time you're 30. Okay, so, but I, I'm going to still pay you the same, $10 an hour. Sound good to you? Not the greatest. No, that's the po the point here is that you <coughs> you are taking a risk that you didn't take before, and so you are going to expect a higher return for that risk that you have taken. You won't take that risk if there is not some gain to bearing that risk that you expect to be there. And that is the way it is with stocks. I talked to you about beta. Beta is measuring risk. They're, the beta is higher 
the more variable the outcomes could be. A stock that just floats there, or a bond. Bonds don't move very much, they just boom. They are low risk, and therefore you shouldn't expect to get a high return for them. But if you are bearing greater risk, you would expect, you're not going to do it unless there is something in it for you. <sighs> trying to think. I got about 20 things running through my mind <laughs> uh, that I want to cover here in this first part of it. Okay, now, let, let's take it, a, take it along a different path. Like, for example, uh, there's got to be, as I had told you before, a risk-free rate. Something you get just for putting your time into it, okay? Putting in an opportunity cost of time. And then everything else where there is a possibility of some unexpected outcome has to pay you more. That's just how it works. You're here at this fine university, not because you are, you're just in love with learning and just you want to live the academic life and learn from old geezers like me groaning at you for hours at a time boring your socks off you're not here for that you're taking a risk you're putting money directly into it and you're putting the opportunity cost of time you could be at a job making money you're bearing a rather significant risk so if you go out there and you make no more than you would have with a high school diploma, you're not going to do this. You're going to do it purely because you're willing to bear a greater risk to expect a higher return. That doesn't mean you're going to get a higher return, for God's sake. You're not going to get a higher, there's no guarantee. Uh, obviously, if you know there are some majors, you choose to take it, and you're not going to make that much at it. I, I'm not going to mention any, but marketing. Uh, but no, <laughs> making more money now is ridiculous. But I mean, the, the, that's the whole thing: is that you're taking the risk, and you're expecting something for that. You take a lower risk degree here. You should not expect to get a high amount of money for that. The coursework is more straightforward. It does not stress you as much. And so the risk to you, uh, the return to you is you are expecting to get a lower return. That's why we appreciate the fact that some of you walk right into this maelstrom. You go into the sciences, you go into some of our business subjects, we bust our asses to try to make sure that you have a chance at a good paying job. But again, it's expected, not the reality of it. So this is our rule. The first part, the first way to say the rule is to say the greater the risk, the greater the return. Now this isn't the correct one, so be careful when I give this to you on an exam. I'm going to give you four different ways that the rule can be stated. Only one of them is right. This is not quite right. There are two things wrong with it. The first one I've just mentioned is that you are not guaranteed a better return just because you've taken a greater risk. I guarantee you, I invest in these high-risk stocks, in these exotic derivatives called options, and I mean, I usually get my ass kicked. So it's not the greater the risk, the greater the return. The second version of it is the greater the risk, the greater The expected return. You got this degree here. It was a, you decided you'd major in finance. By God, I'm going to go out there and make myself a fortune. Well, it turns out you didn't. You got your clock clean. No one wanted to hire you because they'd heard that you were one of those guys who did crazy investments and lost your family's fortune. So, but the point there being that you expect it, it's not guaranteed. And that's what happens in markets. We form expectations about what's going to happen. 
We can do it on hopes and dreams. We can do it with hardcore analysis. Or we can do it with someone else's advice. But we don't get a guarantee of anything. Now there's another thing here. Okay. You, madam, you decided that you were going to do that job with the um, handling the hot oil to make those delicious donuts, okay? And so, okay, that's fine. And I say $15 an hour. I didn't, I wasn't going to pay you that, but she's good at what she does. So you say, okay, well, I, I, you got these big, heavy gloves that I can wear. I'm not going to wear those, so you pay me more. And you know what I'm going to say to you? Kiss my ass. No. That's a risk that you didn't have to take. And so I'm not going to pay you to do something that you could avoid doing. It's only what you cannot avoid doing. You have to handle that hot oil. You can't avoid doing that for this job. But you can wear the big heavy gloves and the uh, uh, apron and all that that will protect you from ca catastrophic events. So hell no, I'm not going to pay you for you being a crazy mofo. I mean, uh, so there's another part to this risk. It's not just risk. It's risk that you cannot remove. What we call the greater... The systematic risk, the risk that is part of the system, the greater the expected return. That's the key. That's the one. It's not risk and return. It's systematic risk and expected return. There is risk that is in the system. And then there is risk that is not part of the job. It's something that is outside of it. It's outside of the system. So I'm not going to reward you for that. No market is going to reward you for taking risk that you could have avoided. And that's the way it will be with the jobs that you take on. You won't be rewarded for risk that did not need to be done. And that's what beta is measuring. Beta isn't measuring risk. It's actually measuring the risk of the stock that you can't get rid of. <coughs> and in stocks, buying and selling stocks, uh, we have a specific name for that systematic risk. We call it uh, non-diversifiable risk. Non-diversifiable risk. The systematic, the word we use is non-diversifiable. You can't get rid of it through diversification of the portfolio. Now I'm going to tell you a couple of stories here about this. This is important because this is one of the bases, the fundamentals of our way of managing asset portfolios. And it doesn't matter what portfolio it is. And I think I already went through this once, but I'm going to go through it again. Uh, I find someone who's looking inattentive. Uh, looking for a male. You, sir, I want to tell you about your life. Your life is... I'm going to do this now. Here's a timeline of your life. And here are your health care costs. Now, you were born a kind of a scrawny, sickly kid, you know. I, you know, if you'd been mine, I probably would have put you up for adoption right away, you know, but I didn't, you know. So, we rode out, and you had these awful costs at the beginning, 
then there was that demonic possession I had to pay the priest to get rid of. And then finally you started to get a little healthier in your later toddler years. Then you had some problems with diarrhea and behavioral problems. And then you got into your, you know, eight to nine and your problems went down. But then you got into your teenage years. You found out about weed. Then you found out about those things that were purple and they were on pieces of paper. And then you found out about girls. You got into college and you started feeling better until you got strep. And then you got into your 20s and you got the herd immunities. You didn't get very sick. But then you got into your later 30s. First, there was diabetes. And then there was, you had to buy Viagra. Then the cholesterol hit. Then the prostate cancer. It got pretty expensive. But then you got on, and then you had a heart attack and you died. Now I'm going to talk about someone else's life. Uh, hmm, who looks different from that? Okay, you, madam. Born at about the same time. You are healthy. I mean, low cost, not many sicknesses. And, you know, you had uh, your first tricycle and several bo broken bones. Then you got healthy. But then you had some problems around seven, eight. But you got your act together. You found out about boys and, or whatever. And then you got, but then you got into your 20s and you had some problems. And then obesity, then implants. <laughs> but you got pretty healthy. But then the bladder problems. And then finally you die. There's an important point here though. Imagine if I put those two together. Do you, how do you see how they are not perfectly correlated, so they're helping to cancel out each other's variability? If I put more and more people into this chart, you will see that they will start to cancel each other out. And after thousands of thousands of people, it will be every year for the pool of people a known or very predictable number. That's how health insurance works. The more people that are in the pool, the better we can predict the, or what's going to be paid out every year. <clears throat> it doesn't matter if you're dying one year, you're doing great that year. And that's the way this whole thing works is that if you put enough people into a risk pool, then that will guarantee that it will smooth itself out over a long period, over a long period of time. And a couple of uh, points about that is that when health insurers cherry pick or they discriminate, against certain populations, they're biting off their own nose to spite their faces because what might be, oh, that, that subgroup has higher risk of heart attacks. Yes, but if you look, they have lower risks of other things that other subpopulations have high risks of. So you pile them all into the pool and the thing starts to behave in a very predictable way. That's how insurance works. That's, uh, uh, we've known that for ages, but we kept thinking, well, if we can just cherry pick, we can uh, lower the overall cost. Actually, they weren't. They, didn't, they wouldn't even try to do the actuarial analysis that would have told them expanding the pool lowers the risk. And the same is true in a lot of other areas too. 
There are models now, or data, where we find that discrimination in employment against minorities, against women, that was not helping the workforce. It was actually making the workforce have a higher risk. Uh, put more people in there of different kinds, and you get the benefit of risk reduction. Diversification of the portfolio. That's the whole name of the game. The one-trick pony is the biggest risk in the world. Just like if you buy one stock, if you buy one stock, you're just asking for it. Because that one stock, it might have a beta of 0.6. Well, let me show you one. Let me show you one. And I, I probably have, I'm repeating something of what I've said before. But let's go over here and let's look at... <coughs> <coughs> Excuse me. Microsoft, MSFT. See that stock? It has a risk of a beta of 0.92. In other words, it's less risky than the mark world market. But if you hold that on its own, that thing is insanely risky. Its volatility is just really something. In fact, if I recall the numbers right, only about 40% of its volatility do you need to have because you can diversify away the rest of its volatility. Just put it into a well-diversified portfolio. That's how it works. Let me show you something here. Um, uh, what was, oh, I know what I was going to show you. So how would you know? You see the whole trick here with risk diversification uh, 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 getting rid of that non-diverse, that diversifiable risk, is to make sure that the the different components aren't moving the same way. You want them to work against each other. They, to, I, I should say this: you want them to cancel each other's noise out. You want to cancel the noise out and look at the uh, larger system. So there is a site, and I'm, I'm not even going to try to remember. I think I've got it in my, in ReggieNet. Or it's called, called the Portfolio Visualizer. Oh, shut up. Okay, there it is. Portfolio Visualizer. Um, where, uh, it was, it was up there. Oh, there, it did. <laughs> now, this, what you do is you put in different stock ticker symbols, and it will tell you how well, how correlated there are, they are. You don't want stocks that are correlated with each other very highly. You want to stay as far down from a one to one as you can. And again, I believe that I showed you this before, but let me show you again. Let's take Ford, uh, Facebook, uh, Target, Walmart, um, Pfizer, Microsoft, um, Tesla. What else should I do? HD. LMT, Lockheed Martin. And I know, cat, Caterpillar. Now, I'm not going to worry about any of this. We're just going to look at the correlations. What's Facebook? Meta. Is that what it's called now? There it is. What's the magic number? You'll hear different analysts say different things. I look for something below a 0.3 correlation. Now, if you look at Ford, Ford correlates only minimally with Meta. You could put those two together in a portfolio, and they would do a lot to cancel each other's noise out. Target, not quite as good. Uh, it's not bad. Walmart, Ford and Walmart are very, are, 
Walmart are very uncorrelated. So they would be good in a portfolio together because they, they cancel each other's noise a lot. The same for Pfizer and Meta, and Ford, I'm sorry, Ford. Pfizer and Ford, which makes sense. Microsoft, they're all pretty good. Home Depot and Caterpillar, they're too far up there. And if you think about it, that makes sense. They're, they're manufacturing kinds of companies. If I go down here to Meta and look at Meta, uh, we already saw that. Now, Meta against Target, very low correlation. They don't do anything very much the same. Oh, with Walmart and Meta, it's even better. They'd be great in a portfolio together. Pfizer and Meta, Microsoft, Tesla, they're all pretty darn good. Lockheed Martin and Meta, they have so little in common, they would be great in a portfolio together because they would kill a lot of each other's noise. In other words, one's going up, the other's going down a lot of the time. Target with Ford, yeah. Meta, it's not that great. Yeah, point. Well, no, it is. It is. Well, it's one with itself. Walmart and Target, they would not be good in a portfolio together, and it's kind of obvious why. They move tend to move too much together. This and these are stock returns. These aren't just stock prices. These are the returns on the stock. Okay, Pfizer and Target, very low. Microsoft, as you can see, Target is actually, it's not good with Home Depot though, interesting. Well, that's not too interesting. But it's good with Lockheed Martin and Caterpillar. And if you go down this list, you can see where the big correlations are. I'm curious about Caterpillar down here. I want you to notice something. Do you see that Cat is a little bit juicy on the correlation with one? two, three different companies. That would kind of worry me. Yeah, go ahead. So what decimal would you I'm looking at 0.30. Okay. You know, and you can ease edge that up. Some say 0.35, some say uh, 0 0.25, 0 0.20. Mine is right about in the middle, about 0.30. But I do notice here that Caterpillar tends to have correlations with a little, uh, a few too many companies. It kind of worries me. Caterpillar, one, two, three, maybe four. That tells me the Caterpillar, if I'm going to have that in a portfolio, I've got to be careful because it tends to correlate with too many things. Now, Lockheed Martin, a defense contractor, it has one, two. Isn't that interesting? Lockheed Martin has no correlation with Tesla. That's a weird, that's weird. I mean, well, I guess, you know, one's in the business of life and death on the battlefield, the other's in the business of showmanship and expensive cars. Okay, Microsoft. Eh, that's a little worrisome with Ford with uh, Tesla, with Home Depot, and with Caterpillar. That's kind of a little worrisome to me. That Microsoft sounds like a great investment, but at the same time, you know, Pfizer. Pfizer is one, two. Now here's one. How in the, why in the hell is Pfizer highly correlated with Home Depot. I mean, what, you go to Home Depot to get your vaccines or something? I don't know. Sometimes you just don't have an explanation. It's just the market's mentality. But I would certainly, I, I put it in there. Pfizer's a great company, but I'd want to be a little careful about that. You know, I'm just looking at Tesla here. Tesla, the only one that it's really correlated with is Microsoft. That's kind of interesting. Tesla would actually, in that regard, it would be good in a portfolio because it doesn't really fuel correlation with anything else. Walmart and Target, obviously. Home Depot to a small extent, but Walmart looks like a pretty good one in a portfolio too. This is one of the ways you can form a portfolio. I do want to show you one though. 
fang. There's a there's a <coughs> sort of a fantasy portfolio called Fang. Facebook. Uh, what is Apple? Facebook. Okay, Facebook, Meta, Apple, Netflix, and Google, which is yeah. Technically, it's alphabet. Now, that's supposed to be like a fantasy portfolio. Big company. You, as a matter of fact, I think there is an ETF you can buy that has just those in it. Let's see if that's a good portfolio. Meta has a problem with one of the, th one of the three. Apple has a problem with one of the three. Netflix has a minor problem with one of the three. And Alphabet, Google, has, oh, look at that. Google is, has issues with all of them. Google would, a fang, you take out the uh, Google in that and it's okay. But with Google in there, it's not really doing much of anything to reduce the portfolio, not the non-diversifiable risk of the portfolio. So, but this is one of the ways that you can diversify a portfolio. Okay, so if you're going to diversify a portfolio, here's the thing. You want to create your own portfolio. You keep an eye on the portfolio visualizer and you form your portfolio. Let's say this is the number of stocks in your portfolio. And this is the total risk measured by sigma. It's total variable, uh, square root of variance. Now if you have one in your portfolio, you're eating the entire risk of that one stock. You put in another. You get a rather noticeable drop. You put in a third, you get more. And as you add stocks, you're going to get more and more of that diversifiable risk disappearing. Eventually, you will see that you are getting down what you are actually graphing, and there have been so many of these that have been done by real-world data. <clears throat> the risk is approaching asymptotically the non-diversifiable risk. In other words, you're approaching the market portfolio. How many stocks does it take to do this? To get rid of about 95% of your diversifiable risk, 30 stocks. That'll, that would get you pretty far along. The problem with doing it this way is that you're going to be managing a big portfolio. And that is takes up time. You have to keep balancing the portfolio, weighted portfolio, how much of this stock times its price plus how much of this stock times its price, all of that kind of stuff. It requires active management, but you can do it. There are so one way to get rid of that diversifiable risk by at least 30 low correlation stocks. Buy at least 30 low correlation stocks. That will get rid of about 95% of your diversifiable risk. There are two other ways that you can do it. You can do it through ETFs, 
or you can do it through a mutual fund. These two have professional managers. They create a well-diversified portfolio, and then they manage it day-to-day, and so you don't have to. So, what you would look for is this. You go to these ETFs, and I've shown you these before. If you want to ride a perfect market, a perfect market portfolio, then 500 of the largest stocks in the world would be pretty nice. You'd have about 99% of the diversifiable risk gone. You can do that. Let's try that again. The spider. This is the S&P 500. The professional managers of the fund, of the ETF, simply go out, they own that portfolio. And then you buy shares of the ETF. So you own the portfolio. And you notice that the beta is exactly 1.00, because basically those 500 companies are about two-thirds of the world. You can do a lot of other portfolios too. If you want another one, a little bit, a tiny bit riskier is the high dividend spider. Okay, that's all I have for you today. I thank you.